Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Stan Ontology, a K-pop track breakdown podcast. I'm Regression, uh, they them pronouns, and you can find me on Twitter at Regression with three S's. I'm Claudia, she, her pronouns, and you can find me on Twitter at Claudia Low. And as always, you can follow us at Stan Ontology, uh, where we post only the finest of outtakes and weird tangents our brains go onto when we are researching these tracks. Yeah. Of which there will be a couple that have come out of the research process for this one, because it's been an eventful one. Oh boy. Um, but this week, we are talking about the iconic, original assault on the American market that is Nobody by the Wonder Girls. I, I'm trying to clap very quietly into my microphone without causing it to completely spike. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, again, are we going to do the thing where I, we just let that play out and only put the, the actual clip of the track in right here? Uh, I mean, these are all decisions in your hands, my friend. Yeah, they are, they are entirely in my hands. And you did never change. So, all right. So, as always, we start with the bio. Who exactly are the Wonder Girls? They are, were, a five-member girl group under JYP Entertainment. So we're 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 sticking with JYP for a little while. Um, so okay. So talking about the lineup, it is a little strange. So, uh, the. The lineup with which they went to America, which is the one we're going to concern ourselves with, was, I, I do believe, Yubin, Sunye, Sohee, Sunmi, and Yeon. Uh, I think very early on when they first debuted, I forget which one of them wasn't in the original lineup, because that was Hyuna. Uh, yeah, Yubin wasn't in the lineup, and Thank she you. came in to replace Hyuna. But uh, Hyuna kind of left the group very shortly after debut due to her parents' concerns over some standing health issues. She is, of course, now extremely successful and has her own... and was, like, single-handedly propping up Cube Entertainment's, like, <laughs> female artist group before that happened, which we are also going to talk about, which is why I don't want to go over it yeah. too much today. Um, Shout-outs shout out to Hyuna. Shout-outs to Full Minute. They had a, a wonderful career, cut sadly short, but Hyuna's solo career is also a, a concern and interest of ours, which we'll come back to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, she was going to be their main rapper. Yeah, clearly. Wow. Yeah, um, sorry. It's, it's you know, despite... You, I think you can kind of guess a little bit from the name what their concept is. So Wonder Girls debuted in 2007 with a single Irony. Um, and from the get-go, their whole thing was, like, all retro all the time. And it's not as if K-pop is, like, averse to retro stylings. Like, that's a big thing. We had, like, a whole 80s kind of resurgence again, again, again last year, I want to say, mm-hmm. and the year before. Um, the 90s, also very popular of mine right now. Um, but uh, Wonder Girls distinguished themselves by, A, going further back, 
I think, more consistently. And also, that was just every single one of their title tracks. Every <laughs> single one. Yeah. So um, when we get to Nobody, we'll see the very, very clear retro stylings. It's yeah. very, very much like doo-wop, like female R&B group inspired, but that's for a little yeah. later on. Um, and again, like you get a sense of off the name Wonder Girls, Dream Girls, which I know they're not real, but <laughs> you, you, you know, like the, I, the idea of a group like that, that's, that's yeah. I feel, what they're kind of... Totally. Yeah. Um, and then it's worth saying, like, they went through a sort of semi, semi-like hiatus through the middle years and came back with a reboot and, a li- and, a, and an album called Reboot in 2015. Yeah, the rebooted concept was that they were a band now and they could all play their own instruments. Yeah. So all the return promo trailers were of them actually performing their own instruments, having, like, learned something. Yeah. Which is cool and, like, they weren't actually that bad. But then the music, of course, doesn't actually use their own playing. It just, like, puts them on stage with particular instruments. It, yeah, it was sort of like lip-syncing with instruments. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate, because, like, it would have been really yeah. fascinating to see what would happen if they, like, followed through 100%. Right. Either way, though, that gave rise to, like, a different kind of throwback, because it was more, like, saturated late 80s stuff. Mm-hmm. First, um... Uh, Why So Lonely, which is a reggae track. We have another. It is stalking us it, forever. It will never leave. <laughs> never, ever. Um, and then a personal favourite of mine, which is I Feel You, which is a sort of a tallow disco mm-hmm. track. Yeah, so a group of two eras with a lot of lineup changes and um, a a lot of transformation over their time, but really heavily, like, indebted to this original moment in 2008 where they, like, break out and try and pursue one of uh, K-pop's first, like, world dominations. And by world domination, we really do mean American domination. Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm going to just rewind a little bit and, and hit everybody up with the timeline because I, I think we've talked around it a lot and we haven't. We've alluded mm-hmm. to a lot of uh, lineup changes, uh, but after that first big one we talked about with Hyuna leaving uh, to be replaced by uh, Yubin, uh, Sunmi left in 2010 to, well, to go solo, but also really to focus on her academics because... Um, at the time of debut... She was a child. Yeah, at the time of debut, three out of the five members were 14. Um, only Yeon and Sunye were older at 18. And Sunmi was one of the two members who literally dropped out of high school to focus on their American uh, activities. 
So in 2010, she left the group. She went on hiatus to, to go solo to focus on her uh, her academic career. Uh, and so she was replaced by Hiram, um, who is kind of the sixth member of this five-member girl group. Um, and is very much treated like one of the Wonder Girls. Uh, is not really treated as like the sub at all. Don't come after us, please. I'm so sorry. Um, so he left the group in 2013 to focus on acting, and she's pretty much just full-on and full-time actress now, as far as we can tell. Uh, Sunya retired from entertaining in 2014 to focus on missionary work and family life. Uh, she's married with kids. Uh, she's out of the entertainment business for good. Uh, but... Of the others, Sunmi, Yubin, and Yun are actually all still active right now as soloists. They're also all very good soloists, although none of them are yeah. currently signed on with JYP Entertainment as their label. Yeah, I mean, it's not at all unusual. I mean, sometimes it happens. Some groups, like, stick around with their original labels for their solo career, but particularly when, like, groups have, like, complicated negotiations for contract relationships and things like that. They sort of disappear off to other labels to have their solo careers. But mm -hmm. all of them have been successful to varying degrees, I think. Sunmi, obviously, the one that's blown up the most. Yeah. But um, all of them, like, really interesting in their own regard. And I think, like, all of them, as we talked about it, we realised have sort of, like, been very good at, like, writing K-pop that is, like, actually emotionally aware and astute and frequently about getting fucked over by men. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, hmm. I mean, despite that they do seem to still have, like, at least a, a cordial working relationship with JYP, the man himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most notably demonstrated with Sinmi's, uh, as of time of recording, latest single. It's called When We Disco. It's just straight up a disco track, and it's actually a duet with JYP himself. Do you remember, baby? I wanted to bring it up because we were watching it just before this, uh, along with some other choice videos. And um, uh, in this time of coronavirus, I feel uh, comeback stages, like the live stage performances, have had increasingly elaborate introductions because there's... You can't have the host on stage doing the like little bits. You can't have the mini interviews. You can't have the like in-person visual gag skits. So you have to like... So they film little all shorts. That onto, um, yeah. yeah. And, and so one of the, so the, the track basically starts out with JYP and somebody reminiscing about the good old days. And it turns out the good old days are 2010, 2008, when nobody was just, just blowing up in the States. And it's just straight up like footage of their North American trips and tours, etc. And like the behind the scenes stuff, but with like a really crappy black and white filter over it. <laughs> So it feels like a great time to talk about this track. You wanna, it really is. You want to just like talk a little bit about what nobody sounds like? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's again, another one of those tracks that is, it's more than the track itself. It's very much about both the visual aspect of it, the video, and the like the cultural moment that it represents and the, the marketing campaign that backed it up. But the track itself is like, 
uh, how would you how would you describe it? It's like a uh, a sort of flashy, like mid aughts kind of like I I likened it in our discussions to a car engine that's knocking. It's like going. It's got some energy to it, but it's a bit sort of like lurchy, noisy, yeah. and a bit uncomfortable. And it's clearly not as slick as the stuff that succeeds it. But it's like a a pretty competent disco inflected old school R and B track, just with updated production values. Um, it's very like classical cycle of fifth stuff. Um, everyone who's heard it is compared it to like Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. Very, very trad, old school pop, but given a sort of modern lick of paint, even if the lick of paint isn't quite as modern as you might hope or like it to be. With a slightly incongruous rap verse at the very end. Yeah. um, Again, this is still from an era where, like, K-pop hasn't really found a way of, like... This is even pre-hot mess, so it hasn't found the way to, like, be extravagant and fit all its competing yeah, parts we're, together. Yeah, we are in the realm of Marotic's moist raps, so... <laughs> oh, God. So if we're judging on that, judging on that schedule, this is... Uh, on that standard, sorry, th- this is not that bad at all. No, if the, the, the raps can be quite as moist as Marotic, then this is not bad at all. I totally agree mm-hmm. with that. But yeah, um, this is... This is the track. It's... A more it's more retro style than it is a retro track. It sounds like a lot of mid two thousands pop. At the same time, it's clearly like borrowing in like its core sequence from old disco and R and B, and then the looks entirely from old doo wop and R and B. And then yeah, I think we just sort of like at this point, this really is the track where we have to talk about how did they try and break the US. Yeah. And I think to explain how they were trying to break the US, we actually first need to look at a. Well, at how K pop tried to break into Japan, I think is the most kind of obvious comparison in terms of K pop trying to dominate a foreign pop market. And we, we, we've constantly alluded to it. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, all of these groups very often uh, touring in Japan, often to great success, releasing Japanese language singles, uh, Japanese language albums, and so on and so forth. But this, I feel, was sort of the provenance of the second generation. Uh, in particular, uh, Boa. <laughs>
was legendary and also approaching her 20th debut anniversary, which is terrifying. More so when you consider that she debuted at the age of 13. Um, yeah, I am literally just looking up right now. How old was Boa when she released Listen to My Heart, which is the like debut Japanese album that blows up? Um, I just a little bit of maths. She thinks she was 16 when Listen to My Heart comes out. Yeah, like, again, terrifying. Terrifyingly young. <laughs> um, but, and also incredibly successful, incredibly talented, sort of in a league of her own. It's uh, still active as well. Um, but without going into her entire career, let's talk a little bit. Let, let's go over the key kind of points of what was the strategy uh, for trying to secure a foothold for K-pop in Japan. So number one, and I think this is a big one, is a very heavy focus on language ability, if not outright fluency. So this means taking intensive Japanese language classes, being able to speak the language conversationally at the very least. Boa is fluent in, in Japanese. And also making sure you don't have a like particularly strong or noticeable accent. Like it's fine to have an accent, but like not a really thick one. So speaking it quote unquote properly is important. Uh, they, she kind of underwent a hiatus from the Korean market to focus exclusively on the Japanese market. So there's no kind of what I'll call double dipping, right? You're promoting in one country at a time, not both. Uh, although there were a lot of market exclusives, as I said, like specific Japanese releases entirely in Japanese, new original songs, new albums, new packages, new tours, uh, new looks, new aesthetics, the same way you would make a comeback in Korea, but only for Japan and very much marketed towards Japanese tastes and Japanese pop uh, industry and etc. Uh, domination of kind of the airwaves. Uh, so appearing on TV shows, uh, whether those are, you know, talk shows, variety shows, music shows, of course. Uh, but also radio, uh, radio interviews, radio shows, etc. And, you know, had social media been around in uh, when Boa was trying to conquer Japan, I bet she would have been all over that as well, right? Like, that's part of the strategy. Um, but all of this is to say that all of this is basically underpinned by a very top-down approach. And because the thing that made yeah. all of this possible is close collaboration with major Japanese labels um, and, like, Japanese entertainment companies, right? The ones that are running these shows, the ones that are running these uh, record labels, all that kind of stuff. So it's really, really top-down. Um, and that's bas that was basically JYP Entertainment's playbook for entering the U.S., and I think it's worth taking a little time to, to consider why would K-pop want to go to the U.S. in the first place, right? Yeah, so um, we, we've always talked about, like, particularly with regards to China, why you might want to break into China. It's clearly a country with a massive media-consuming population. But it's still a relatively small media market. It's like you go into sales figures and obviously massively increasing over time, but still only the sixth, seventh largest music market in the world. I think we it was co comparable to, like, Canada or Australia. Yeah, exactly. Right now? Canada yeah. was the, the point of comparison. The US clearly hasn't got the same population, but it's by far and away the world's biggest media market. Um, and with that means it's potentially the most profitable and lucrative to break into. 
Um, similarly, like there's also like the uh, both cultural and interpersonal links between like Korea and the US. Like the reason that K-pop as an industry might exist in the first place is the massive infusion of American culture into the Far East post World War Two, and the, there's like a ready-made audience of like uh, Asian Americans in the US to market towards in particular, mm-hmm. as well as like a wider, much larger pop uh, pop market that you would hope and could imagine breaking into. Um, at the same time as like, there's, it's not just a, a sheerly financial decision. There's always the like prestige associated with America being the effective home of pop music. The thing that like all pop music is sort of like taking from, is inspired by and is like judged in reference to. And that, like, success in the US means you've made it in a way that isn't really validated in the same way if you make it elsewhere in East Asia. Um, And that means that, like, all these, like, high prestige, high competition, high risk, high reward strategies are things that you might want to pursue because, like, the reward is potentially being, firstly, that K-pop group that broke the US with all the prestige that's associated with it. Mm -hmm. And then also access to literally the most lucrative market you could possibly ask for. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think that's not incomparable to what we've been talking about with why Japan is a desirable market to break into. Um, not so much in terms of that Korean culture has been influenced by Japan. Like, there's clearly an interrelation there. I think there are there are like complex ways you could talk about the proximity that U.S. culture has to both Korea and Japan and the differences between them, and why Japan might appear or feel closer to the U.S. in ways, and. and maybe less close than others, but, like, that's a very specific historical argument. More than anything, though, that, like, what one thing that was certainly imported into Japan was, like, a mass consumer media culture with, like, massive markups on imported and foreign releases with um, the sort of, like, physical releases a central part of consumption culture. This is exactly the same as in Korea, but, again, because Japan's such a large country with a large market to, to aim at there are all sorts of incentives to break into Japan just as you would with the US. So, like, I think the from the financial standpoint, there are, like, all sorts of logics that seem really similar in extending the approach that you've got attempting to, uh, to succeed in Japan with your success in the US. And at this point, we should really uh, nod towards the sadly now defunct Capendium's excellent article, as always, on Nobody and the sort of the legacy of Nobody. Yeah, um, we can Wayback Machine the uh, the article itself. Um, it's a we absolutely will. Yeah, it's a it's a long, pretty thorough analysis of like where it fits in the sort of trajectory of people attempting to break the US. But essentially, the short version of it was, uh, wow, it was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I mean, at the risk of basically just rehashing the article. Um, as a song, as we said, like, it's good. It's pretty good. It's, like, powerfully and obviously, like, it wears all of its influences on its sleeve. Like, extremely obviously so. Um, and sort of the, the, the kind of, it, it's gl- like the global intentions of this, of this track were clear and obvious. Um... They released an English version of the song. Um, it was first released in Korean, then in English, about a year later, as you can tell by the timestamps on the YouTube videos. Um, 
<laughs> but again, one of the things that always struck me was that uh, I don't actually believe all of the members of the Wonder Girls are actually are necessarily fluent in English, but their diction, their pronunciation is impeccable. Yeah, there's clearly a lot of training and effort going into the to the like production of this this version. Right. And like remember what I was saying about like language fluency being a big deal and not not sounding quote unquote too foreign, like that was clearly a priority for them. Um, that was clearly really important. Yeah, th- yeah th- there's always the standard like why aren't you why couldn't uh, a westerner get into K-pop and the, one of the obvious answers is like the language barrier, both in the sense of, like, I'm not going to listen to people sing in a foreign language. Like, clearly we don't have that problem. But at the same time, it's the, like, how can I relate to them if I can't understand their answers in interviews, if they don't think that they're, like, getting our culture in inverted commas. Yeah. And all of them, I think, are bad ar- arguments, but they're clearly ones that producers and labels have felt the need to yeah. respond to really deeply. But, okay, going a little deeper, the, the music video... Is kind of strange. Kinda is underselling it, okay? Uh, I'm being very polite. They're, okay, so the whole premise of the video is basically like, uh, JYP is a s- successful artist and the Wonder Girls are basically his backup singer slash dancers. And he's handed uh, a, a song. He's handed the song Nobody and he, he, he goes off to contemplate it. And while he's uh, taking a break between performances he gets stuck on the toilet because there's no toilet paper in his stall. Yes, this is the CEO of the entertainment company. And the Wonder Girls are called upon to take center stage and perform it because the star is stuck on the toilet because he took a big dump and there's no paper. Anyway, they're, they they perform the song, and and the thing is, and I'm not and I'm not even joking. The whole way through, the every so often they cut back to him screaming for help on the toilet because there's no paper in it. Hello. Um, and you know, it, it, in the Korean version, at least it cuts away to like newspaper headlines showing them as the little Lord, uh, topping the little Lord charts and selling hundreds of thousands of, uh, copies and like little kids copying their dads and getting radio interviews and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so like, uh, just focusing on that aspect very slightly, there is a, I, I feel like there's an unwritten rule in music video culture that you don't show the process of musical success you can only show the results of it like you watch a drake video and he's showing off his mansion but you don't show the process of like his sales numbers climbing up the charts or whatever yeah you're meant to show the consequences of your success but you're not meant to show the content of it 
Anyway, it, um, anyway, they have decided oh, that the way to like Im- like suggest their own success is to show them like shooting up the Billboard charts and getting loads of radio promo. It's such an act of wish fulfillment that um, it comes across like I'm not going to say crass, but like it's almost as if they don't know the script quite themselves, and they're, they're trying to will it into existence. It's kind of sweet. Uh. Anyway, the the music video ends with uh, JYP running once more to the toilet, uh, this time checking that there's Lou Roll left, and then being horrified because it turns out there was one square left. Yes, it ends on the extended shit gag, everybody. That's the Korean version. The English version is identical. It is 100% identical except for the part where it's in English. <laughs> Yeah, no, they keep the shit gag in. They keep the cutaways from the track to, like, the screens, the non the like, the diegetic noise of JYP screaming on the toilet. They keep the Lord chart number one bit. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot. And, uh, again, the, the only difference is that, like, the opening gag with the producers handing him uh, the, the music, etc., is, like, very obviously dubbed over. And badly. Oh, very badly. Very badly. <laughs> it, with a slightly dubious, like, Brooklynite accent. <laughs> slightly. It's very, very disconcerting. Yeah. Hey, JY. I got you a new song. Nobody's the name. Check it out. It was hot when I heard it. What do you think? Want to try now? Except... Until it cuts to the girls' part. And that's just filmed in English. Yep. Yep. Um, and considering how, how identical everything is, I do believe they basically shot the MV in both languages when they were filming it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which, again... This is the only reasonable conclusion. Right. Which, again, would have been a year before this came out. Yep. So... Clearly this was in the works and planned. For a very long time. Uh, so it, it's a weird it's it's mm, is it worth watching you know what yes it is a music video worth watching you know what you spend the six minutes of your time to understand this little slice of k-pop history all right it is strange and like to be clear when you watch it back now it comes across as a massive ego trip for JY, jyp like I, there is no other way of imagining it than like yeah and i think that is a fair and accurate assessment yeah, because it's a Wonder Girls track, but it's fundamentally a sort of story of JYP's hubris, both narratively and like metatextually. Like it is a story about JYP fumbling his great opportunity, but also a story about JYP's like construction of this fabricated great opportunity that he completely fumbles in the real world as well. Yeah, like the. Just to be clear, like the track that it like has a tiny snippet of JYP performing is one of his own actual tracks called "Honey." Like that's a real piece of music that he has performed on stage, um, um, and like that's like part of the world that is supposed to be meaningful, just as much as the Wonder Girls being successful. To the idea that JYP is performing his own actual music on stage in front of an adoring crowd, like. <laughs>
weird. And so, so I think we do have to talk a little bit about how they tried to promote it in the U.S. Yeah. And this is where, like, if this really is... It's very rare that we see follies like this. We very rarely see groups that quite clearly are the result of, like, desire and ego as much as they are, like, strategic planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really comes across in the, in the story of, like, how, like, the mechanisms and the, the process of how they went about. Right. Their American promotion. So, essentially, they got in with the Jonas Brothers. Um, this is not a joke. This is legitimately what happened. Uh, so, JYP basically bought an office in New York in Manhattan. Uh, they And he basically made a Korean-style idol dormitory in there uh, while trying to kind of court American record labels. Um, and all five of them moved there and stayed there full time. This is the point where Sohi and Sunmi dropped out of high school to move in there for round the clock kind of preparation, English classes, uh, etc., and kind of working on dance shows, practicing you know your responses for media interviews and so on. Um, and there were kind of rumors and mutterings that they would have a track on the upcoming Jonas Brothers album. That never happened, but they did go on tour with them as one of their openers. And it was weird. Like, it is a weird thing. And I've been trying to find a video of uh, the Wonder Girls performing at any one of these. Oh. Have you been able to yet? Well, I haven't... I found it. Um found one and we're going to take a little little recording break just to <laughs> <laughs> drop it in the chat. Yeah, I just did. Oh, wonderful. So, I mean, I'm I'm just going to say let's keep recording and see if we make interesting comments. Yeah. So, okay, so we're watching a a fan cam in the truest sense of the world as in this is someone's shitty uh 2009 era mobile video. Yeah. So, you know. Of, of the big screen, not the actual stage itself. And there's a www.wondergirls URL cut off, which is great. Oh my. <laughs> and it's like a sizzle reel for them, and it's just got like the names of all the countries they've been successful in. Which, let's be honest, an American audience would not give a single flying fuck. <laughs> Not even a bit. You're entirely right. Yeah. And so they're, the five of them are on stage. They're in the middle of this big circular stage. They're saying hi, etc. Oh my god, you can literally see the stage person. Stop filming the goddamn screen. And they're trying to teach everybody the song. Uh, the, sorry, the dance. <sighs> this is uncomfortable. This is so uncomfortable because, because this is the wrong way to interact like, with this, this crowd. Yeah. Like, again, this is part of the whole story is like, how is a K-pop group meant to interact with an American audience who doesn't understand them? And the answer is like, well, we're going to talk about a different K-pop group that chose a different tactic and was a bit more successful. <laughs> soon, but, um, soon. But like, again, yeah. to go back to the Japanese comparison, the 
The way that pop is consumed, I think, is close enough between Korea and Japan that you can do the stuff, and and it it'll mm-hmm. translate culturally, right? Like it'll it'll be fine. You can the choreo is a big deal. The kind of like elaborate set pieces, the whole concept, etc. I don't think, and especially not in 2009, any one of these fans would have given a single flying fuck about the Jonas Brothers' ability to dance or lack thereof. Yeah, and it's it's, not it's the weird. Point. Like I'm trying to reach. Yeah, I'm trying to reach back into my memory of like what were they like? Because they were like a Disney act, right? They were a, an act that came through that like pop production timeline, uh, pipeline, even timeline. What am I talking about? Um, I do want to check if they were a, a, a Disney product. I'm pretty sure they were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were. Yeah. They were a camp. They were came out of Camp Rock and its sequel, Camp Rock Two: The Final Jam. Um, so yeah, absolutely part of that like very standard Hollywood's like ch- uh, child talent mill, and like part of that is about performing ability, but a much larger part of it is about the sort of like it, it's less. Of, I'm trying to think like what are the the touchstones for for K-pop fandom and how they different because like I immediately go for things like cult of personality and like fandom adoration that like do translate nowadays mm. in a way but that like the nature of the, the content of what fandom looks like is really really different because like k-pop fandom is really demanding yeah. k-pop fandom is like about learning and like active support very deliberate support rather than just like the idea that like all your media products are going to be infused with a particular person so that like you have no choice but to like intensely relate to their like charming personality that gets thrown at you in every... Not that, not that like, like, that kind of relation doesn't, that kind of, that way of relating doesn't exist, you know, vis-a-vis people buying eight copies of Taylor Swift's album to help propel her to the top of the charts or whatever. No, but it's, like, not but the I central think, content of it. I, but I think there's a, yeah, I think there's an excellent visual metaphor happening in front of us, and it's that the Jonas Brothers stage is circular. And this entire dance is designed to be performed on a square stage with a very obvious front. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're entirely right. Like, it, it really is as simple as that. <laughs> the There is a spectator that this dance is, to, is, is performed to. And the stage is not... The stage can't accommodate that. It's very painful to watch. And... The, um- and a gaze, yeah, and a gaze that's just about like getting any glimpse you can in a sort of unorganized way, just like yeah, just being in the presence of the Jonas Brothers is the thing that's important. Like there isn't meant to be like an organized gaze that you're meant to be paying attention to, right. that you're meant to relate to being the audience member, the like the recipient of. It that is literally what car- like, the K-pop type K-pop choreographies are supposed to do. Yeah, it's meant you're meant to be put in the position of the viewer, like. It's just as much as like the audience in the K-pop concert is meant to be in the position of the same position that like a TV viewer is, or a, like someone watching a music video on their phone. Mm. Like the visual relationship between the performer on stage is meant to, and effectively is the same. Right. And like it's notable. Like I think back to acts that have made circular stages work, and the literally the only one I can think of is Temin's Tokyo Dome stage, which is the the only like long form K-pop. Um, concert that I know which is a circular stage 
And that's meant to work because Temin isn't trying to recreate a music video. He's meant to try put on a live dance performance because that's what people know. Also, he's a soloist. And yeah, and like, like all of those make the relationship between performer and audience completely different. Like you're not meant to be replicating the sort of like intense large scale choreography. You're not meant to be like trying to produce a facsimile of a thing that has been put out on TV a hundred times. You're meant to be like producing something that's more like personal or personality oriented right and maybe intimate i don't know if that's the right, right. way to put it oh uh, shout outs to the one woman who's like really feeling it when you've been raps <laughs> can you see her center back yeah yeah center yeah, yeah. center back front row in yep, the yep, yep, middle yep, section yep. oh she's having a time do you think she's here with her kids uh, uh could be Okay, that is worth watching. Yeah. I'm choosing to imagine that that is a wine mom who's, like, had quite a few drinks on the way here, got dropped off by a very nonplus and confused husband, and has just decided to enjoy herself no matter what. I choose to believe that. Yeah. So, uh, they opened with basically two songs. They opened basically with uh, Nobody and Tell Me. Which was, I think, their, which was their big kind of like breakout hit in Korea, in Korean, and just like wrenching them out of that K-pop context and throwing them into this one, it, who, no, uh, you can tell. I mean, you can hear how uncomfortable we both were watching that. Yeah. Um, and I've just located another video of them opening in Portland that has "Tell Me" as well. Uh, but you really don't need to watch it. Like, it's the same. Um, yeah, it's exactly the same with the same kinds of awkwardnesses. And right. And so, uh, again, I don't think we need to go deep into the whys of how it failed, because you can I, quite literally watch that video and figure it out on your own. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is literally all there that just like, this is not how American audiences are, are like used to being related to. This is a deeply alien thing. Certainly not in 2009. And again, this is not a knock on any of them as performers. They are impeccable performers. They're, especially in their solo career, we love all three of them that are currently in the uh, music entertainment industry. Sunmi is one of my favorite artists. Just hands down. Um, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. Uh, and I, I guess wrenching us back into the business side, like, you know, part of this massive top-down push into America involved JYP uh, investing in this Manhattan office that was going to become, like, the place, the home of K-pop in America. And it was going to, you know, they were going to have this song remixed by uh, hot upcoming artists. In the remixes are really, they're very not good. Yeah, no, they're, they they're almost concerningly bad. Like, how much did you pay for this, and what did you get back? There's one that's, there's there's one that's uh, there's one that's bad in sort of like a eh, kind of way, which is the uh, oh the slow acoustic remix, the Rainstone remix, the Rainstone remix. Yeah, the slow Rainstone. There we go. Rainstone remix. Uh, but then there is the uh, and again, I am literally just going to quote off K off K Penium because Jacob Dorf puts it better than I could. Uh, the awful autotune slur of a remix by Jason Nevins. A slur, a slur of a remix is my favorite line. Yeah, of the whole piece. as yes. expensive as of as it was garbage scented. 
And the footnote, the footnote on this puppy is worth reading because it turns out the only way that you could get the song uh, was um, well, okay, no, not the only way. So it got a physical release with the Rainstorm remix on a special CD single. Uh, that you could only get, and I am quoting, I'm just reading now, by entering a secret Twitter-reviewed URL into a website where you could pay $2, print out a receipt, and bring it to your local H-Mart for redemption. H-Mart is a really big chain of uh, Korean uh, grocery stores in America. Wow. And uh, these are all English versions. Uh, It was only available in New York, New Jersey, and D.C., so all on the East Coast, not and and again, the kind of like bastions of of Korean like American kind of population centers are all on the West Coast. L.A. Uh, is a big one, and um, the only advertisements for the promotion that he could find were in Korean, but all of the songs were in English. And why are you promoting Korean to people who are ostensibly already going to these? Korean grocery it's very confusing yeah and it's this exact thing where like I don't think anyone at any point figured out who the actual audience for this was whether it was like Korean Americans in the US or whether it was like an attempt to actually break a mass um, like Disney focused young fan or uh, audience or whether it was like we want to become a, a like a an industry thing like this is a foothold for like gang industry connections so that we can like stop producing american scented content or whatever it might be like none of this seemed to really make any sense Look, the only saving grace <laughs> is that that like really weird physical release meant probably s- severely limited the numbers of people who listen to this remix yep because it's bad it's so bad it's awful the video is shit the music is shit oh my god so i mean what happens after this though is they sort of like the the first thing that happens to be honest and this is the most important feature is that like new york new york is a municipality finds out that there are people living in an office space because jyp has illicitly turned his office into a into a trainee dormitory K-pop idol dorm um yeah. and because of the uns- the lack of like safety things and the the misuse of the building's protocols they shut his building down yeah it's not what it was uh it's not what it was meant to be you didn't have a code for a residential building there yeah. man it's, you can't it's do not that. what's meant to happen um. <laughs> um, but what actually happens though is like the 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 American releases never really materialize, and what they realize has happened instead is that an English language version has instead been fantastically popular in China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, and they pivot and just put out a Mandarin version. Yeah, um, they put out a version in Mandarin. They put out a version in Japanese. You know, they basically go back to the old stomping grounds where they're successful and it is enormously successful the reason why there is that list of countries is like wonder girls topped the charts on most of those right like nobody was fantastically successful just not in america yeah i mean you said yourself that this is a this is a track that your parents have like a radio familiarity with christ i remember it blowing up in hong kong and you could not get away from it everyone knew the point dance it was you know, cringy in the way where a song is so popular that your mother can do the point dance for it. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was nobody. Again, huge, yeah. huge, huge. Um, it's just not in the place they wanted it to right. be. It, it helps that 
It helps that the uh, Chinese abridged music video doesn't have the shit gag in it, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, I think they probably learned their lesson. Though, ironically, I think it would have been better received. <laughs> uh, the, the English version was the one that really needs to be just, like, the sizzle reel, the show reel of, like, this is our amazing group. Right, like, again, a six-minute video for a four-minute 30 song is straining things already in terms of American music video releases. Sorry, three-minute 30 song. To be clear. Oh, three minutes. Th- right. It is a six minute long. It is. The video is almost double the song length then. Yeah, this is this is this is an issue. <laughs> yeah. But again, this is like when we say successful in the wrong place, you can see all the like weird, like late colonialist hangovers of prestige and desire, like settling in in the background here that like no pop act is really, really like successful um, unless they can go successful break it unless they crack, crack a Western audience. No, um. No pop app is really like um, validated until like people who like originated this music in some way, like until actual American audiences who are like authentically American, unlike Korean Americans, is the subtext there. Mm-hmm. Um, validated with the sales, and like this is something that I don't think K-pop is is ever really going to go like Be deal free with of? until. Well, I mean, the thing is, what has happened is a new generation of K-pop listeners have emerged, which are just like non, like, who are just Westerners of all all um, races and ethnicities, um, and that's happened only because Korean acts have been able to export themselves without this like confused sales pitch to a particular audience that may or may not exist or care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Both are, both are important. Yeah. Anyway, we were... Basically, my read on the whole situation, the whole hi- this whole convoluted history of Nobody, and it is, again, impossible to talk about the song without talking about how it was sold, is that the, you know, the Japanese and Chinese music videos are kind of what the English one should have been. Not this weird scene-for-scene, shot-for-shot copy, but, like... Uh, highlight reels, different outfits, kind of flashy. Um, you already know the song. This is just the one that's in a language you speak versions. Um, and mm-hmm. they were, again, tremendously successful chart toppers. And it basically feels like JYP was chasing that dream that we were talking about. That dream of proving that K-pop could make it in America. But his business associates basically forced him to cut his losses and do the financially sensible thing of chasing the safe markets. And by safe markets, I mean markets in which it had already been a success, right? Like, not, it wasn't even a gamble. <laughs> it's almost perverse how easy it is. Yeah, at this point, when a song is this extraordinarily successful, it's almost ridiculous how easy it is to be a world beater, frankly. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a strange thing. Especially so, more so when you consider that the song opens with the ad-libs, with the ad-lib, and it will never change. <laughs> uh, and I have, like, six different versions, just counting MVs and remixes. Not even counting the part where, like, they release the instrumental versions of these songs on all the albums. Yep, yep. Uh, so I did want to say that, like... There are two things I want to, like, bring up. One is, like, we do have a latter-day comparison for this a whole generation later. And I think it's Super M. 
Yes. So Super M is SM Entertainment's, SM, Super M, you get it? Um, Their attempt at a super group, super, you you get it, super, super group, SM, Super M. It was clearly not a difficult naming decision. No, Um, but with a tagline, the Avengers of K-pop being like stuck on them in all the marketing material, which is a terrible tagline. But a memorable one at the very least. They are a seven uh, seven member boy group. They are taken one member from Shiny, two from EXO, two from NCT, and two from Wavy. So taking and also they only took one from Shiny because he's the only one currently not in it. <laughs> yeah, that that does help. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, so this is the idea: it's to c- construct out of SM's array of boy groups a supergroup that takes all the like most like high profile. Most popular. Most popular, most exciting, and best performing members, putting them in a seven-man group together, and then, like, firing them through a cannon at the US market and seeing what happens. Unleashing them, yes. Um, so, they came out at the full... Would it be about a year ago now? Yeah. With... with mm, so, when we say the track is called Jopping... I don't even care, young We have to explain what jopping is now. <laughs> Jopping's on the list for season two. We don't have to explain anything. Fine. Um, what I do want to gesture towards without digging into the actual content of the track is um, the idea that, like, this was Lee Suman, the founder of SM's, kind of folly as well, in that, like, it was a very clearly top-down managed production. It was a group that was convened and put together specifically for the p- purpose of breaking the US. They're partnered with Capitol Records, if that. Yeah, it, it was done in collaboration with Capitol, so like one of the biggest US um, like music labels. And the strategy for promotion was very similar to what we talked about with the Wonder Girls, in that instead of radio, we've remembered... They went on Ellen a lot. Yeah, they went on Breakfast TV, they went on Ellen. Yeah. <laughs> the Ellen appearance is one of the most like unusual, uncanny things I've ever forced myself to watch. They try to, they try to teach her how to jop, I guess. That's... Yeah. It's... Mm, anyway. The, we're not even going to explain what jopping is, but if you... you mm, just imagine what jopping is and whatever it is to you, that's what they try to teach Ellen to do. Yeah. Close. <laughs> oh, I think I think it's also worth saying that uh, the song itself is, again, a pastiche of extremely American music styles. Oh, yeah. So, like... Anthem rock, it uh, turns out. Yeah, it turns out somewhere between anthem rock and EDM in the sort of unholy mess that only K-pop could, like, invent and construct. And conceive of. And then somehow make... Yeah. Like, only K-pop could, like, construct that combination, put it together, and sell it until it's, like, a multi... Like, tens of millions of views on YouTube. But, like, I'm not going to say it was a flop, but it was kind of a flop. Like, it didn't do the numbers that everyone hoped it would. Well, right, it's the same thing. It's, like, it's... it's There was so much marketing muscle and just, just so much cash just poured into it that it would be hard for it to flop 
And again, taking members from already established groups, all of which have their own very loyal fan fan bases, almost ensured it would have at least some level of of success. And it obviously did. It just didn't have the yeah. right kind of success. Exactly. It didn't have the sort of like all encompassing natural explosion into like audiences who hadn't heard of K-pop in the first place. That's the like central problem. And just like the numbers weren't quite as flattering as they would have liked. And that's ne- never going to be a thing that like you can get away with that. Like when you're up against BTS and um, Blackpink and twice, like we finally said it anything. Le- yeah. Anything less than like approaching uh, 300, 400 million YouTube views over the, over the course of a year is just a failure. And Super M like did really well but didn't do that well and all of a sudden you've got this thing where it's like well what's the point of the group and they didn't in inverted commas crack the US what they did do is start off a vast international tour one of which one of the shows of which I saw in London which was really fun mm-hmm. but again like you could just see that the you just came back from that telling us that Taehyung is actually even more superhumanly beautiful uh, in person than oh yeah, no, like, all of them are stunning in their own distinct ways, but, like, Taeyong has a jawline and cheekbones that are undefeated. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is which, with some stiff competition in this group. Oh, my God, of course, of course. Um, but, yeah, the, the bottom line being that, like, or literally a day ago, as of time of recording, Super M's second, like, single, called, Un- called 100, came out. And it's, again, kind of a hot mess kind of a strangely throwback to 2014-15 hot mess. Mm. And, um, like, I don't know who its audience is supposed to be. It certainly isn't the mythical, fabled crack the US. It certainly doesn't feel like a track that's about to find a new audience for K-pop in the US. Like, I am sure it will be baseline successful, but it still feels like the top-down marketing strategies aren't finding new audiences out of nowhere. It isn't, like constructing a mythic figure who is going to like suddenly latch onto I better listen to K-pop because it's more interesting and vital than everything else that's out there. That has only really happened in two ways. <laughs> and this is where we get to segue. The first is Psy. Oh Christ. We knew this time was coming. We knew we would have to talk about it. Yeah. We gotta talk about Gangnam Style. So yeah, so... Gangnam Style is not a track that we put at the top of our list of things we actually need to talk about. We actually barred ourselves from doing a whole episode about it. Yeah, we really did. If 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 only for the realization that there's we don't have an there's not enough there to talk about it for an hour without well essentially doing this not talking about it. <laughs> yeah, and just being upset either either being upset or like trying to draw cultural assertions that we just either would be baseless or are just kind of crass. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say that it's kind of instructive, that, like, um, we talked about the Wonder Girls doing their thing in the US in, like, uh, 2009, 2010. In the summer of 2012, Gangnam Style, which is a, a track by... You've probably heard it by now. Mm-hmm. A track by Sai, who was a Korean male solo artist, drops... And immediately within like a couple months becomes the most viewed YouTube video on the planet. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. 
important to remember he's kind of like a humor. Uh, he's like a comedic artist. Like his whole thing is mm-hmm. satire and absurdism and this kind of like very a certain kind of like gross middle age uh, portly elder man physical comedy involving a lot of toilet humor and just a lot of inappropriate relationships with younger women that is a staple of East Asian comedy I am sorry to say <laughs> I mean th- there you go there you go um, but yeah it's though, not, the bottom it's, line is that- it's we were okay we were watching it and there is a unreleased as of right now clip of us live reacting to just five different side music videos in a row Jesus um, mm, and yeah, we, we did that to each other. We did do that to each other, and there are points where we're just like, yep, that's just a butt. That's it. That's it. That's the entire point of it. <laughs> um, and, like, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that part of why Gangnam Style broke is because, like, firstly, it's designed to be stupid and fun and kind of absurd and dumb, right? Like, Yeah, the, the, like, whole central point is that, like... Oh, it's a it's an Asian man who's kind of fat, doing dumb dances and doing a whole bit where he's like really committed to dancing really well, and the dance is stupid and none of the other people in the scenes with him want to like. Yeah. It, it it's all various kinds of either toilet humor or like absurdist horse horse um, dancing. Just just to just to be explicit about it, Gangnam style Gangnam is like a really kind of hip, trendy, upper-class district. And the whole song is basically about someone who is claiming that he's Gangnam style, like, claiming that he's, like, high-class and refined and cool and slick, while everything that you can see, the the dance, the song itself, how he looks, like, everything is completely at odds with this claim. Like, that's it. And, And it kind of unfortunately falls square into the trope the comment, the like super racist comedy trope of like, haha, Asian man tries to be cool and he's not. Yeah, or at least just even before it gets to like any cultural awareness, just like, oh, funny foreign guy who's fat doing silly dances is just like inherent physical comedy. Yeah. Um, but like, this is the thing that like, <laughs> K-pop first broke the US because of like racism and Orientalism. It didn't break because of like some deep attachment to the music. Yeah. Even if it is like, it could only work because it's a catchy song. And the songs, but that's and not songs, the like, like central like. The song's fine. Yeah. It's extremely what it is. <sighs> yeah. The. Yeah, the, and we just you just hear the energy draining from our voices because we have nothing to say that's constructive about this song other than like. This is the world's first encounter with K-pop, and well, not first. It really isn't for for many many people. But like, for the Western gaze, the first encounter is Gangnam Style, and that sets a tone for like, oh, if it is gonna go viral, it's gonna go viral because of like ridiculousness or absurdity or like the ability to laugh at the physical comedy or the laugh at the strangeness, the weird Asian things that are happening, and none of those are good things to do. But like now that we've been, like, paying attention to this world for five-plus years, each of us, we can see that, like, the, the the actual content of this is, like, established performers from Korean comedy TV and, um, like, using the irony of juxtaposing him with Hyuna, who is, like, a... Uh, like, a... In Korea, at least. Hyuna comes back, I'm telling you, see? It just... Mm, perfect yeah. circle. Um, 
she's like at the top of her popularity as a like a super like one of the sexy queens of those summer bops one of the hottest women in Korea and then using her as the foil for the like older portly gentleman doing physical comedy mm-hmm. um, and like all of a sudden the sort of like internal cultural logic makes a whole lot more sense to us it's just that like there's still not a whole lot there. We don't want to talk about bullshit comedy tracks. Look, I, I basically said, and I stand by it, part of the reason why it was successful is that we didn't have a lot of very good memes back then. Yes, I will agree with you. All right. We had shitty memes, and this was an okay one, and we have better ones now. <laughs> what We're all better off for it, frankly. Yeah. Um, and that leaves us with, what was the... What was the second way that K-pop broke the US? And the answer is BTS. And that is an entirely different kind of breaking the US. Oh, yeah. And uh, it is bottom-up, organically done, and still with the sort of, like, deliberate direction from a label, but with a support base that emerged in the US completely independently of the, like, promotion cycles that were happening the band was doing. Um, we will talk about BTS next week. That's what next week is all about. Oh, are we going to talk about BTS? Oh, it's gonna... Are we going to talk about BTS? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like the perfect counterpoint to, to any conversation about the Wonder Girls. Because like, when it finally happened, it happened for exactly the reasons that Wonder Girls attempted... To, well, it, exactly the opposite reasons that the Wonder Girls thought it might. And exactly for the reasons that the Wonder Girls failed. That like, an approach based on like an appeal to a nominal appeal to like an Asian American audience through established like high high prestiged high profile media channels using like with song with a song whose entire sonic world is essentially going look we sound just like you yeah and none of those were the things that happened for BTS absolutely none of them yeah um Again, with the language point where, like, BTS lucked into having a a leader who is fluent in English, but otherwise without doing much specific English language training, mm-hmm. whereas Wonder Girls massively prioritised that. Yeah. And for all of these we- reasons, they're, like, a fascinating example for, like, how K-pop has transformed itself and might still transform itself in the face of the success that BTS has had. Oh, can you tell um, where Jazz to do next week? Well, not next week, but, you know, next whenever yeah, we, we are, record but- Never promise a time cycle for, uh, for, for podcasts. That's what I've learned. For one of these episodes. Yeah. But yeah, but it's exactly this, this thing that like, for that to happen, we had to have enough like moments that prove that yeah. the other way was never going to work. The other way being Wonder Girls, the like top down high level strategy, import the Korean, the Korean promotion cycle and business model. Just like it flopped. And it flopped for very obvious, very salient cultural, economic, and financial reasons, but also the, because, like, the folly of individuals is what it is, and, like, sometimes JYP has just got to put a shit gag in a music video and try and sell it to the entire US. For six whole minutes. Yeah, you can tell this really got under our skin. Yeah. Anyway, I think that does it for this episode. Yeah. I think we've said all we can say. I'm going to experiment with something that I did not run by Michael before we started and say that if you have any general questions for us, not at, to clarify, not questions about are you going to do X track? Are you going to cover X artist? Um, if you have any sort of general questions about, I, I don't know, this project, K-pop, 
random stuff about what we like or don't like. Although I think at this point, it's kind of evident uh, what what kinds of music we we tend to listen to. Um, shoot them over to at Stan Ontology. Uh, we'll see if we can fit them in. Hell yeah! Yeah. Um, I'd very much be up for that. Um, and we will see you next time for talking about. And this is the track reveal moment. <gasps> BTS's Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The previous nine episodes have been no joke just to lay the groundwork so that we can, in fact, talk about BTS. Basically. Yeah. I mean, people. I'm sure people have talked to you, definitely people have mentioned to me, like, when are you going to talk about BTS? Oh. Now. We're going to talk about BTS now. Yeah. yeah. And we had to spend the previous, like, 12 hours of audio talking about all the other mm-hmm. stuff so that we are properly ready. We're ready to talk about BTS. Yeah. All right. We are. We're finally there. All right. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Remember to do the whole liking thing, the review thing. I don't understand it. I sure hope you do. Uh, this is my... <laughs> like, subscribe, five stars on iTunes, all that jazz. Yeah. And we'll be back. Hell yeah. We'll be back. And it will never change.